Imagine you want to buy a new car or a new vehicle, new truck, whatever. You're at the car dealership and you're talking with the salesperson. And for once, they're more than happy to quote you a solid price. However, the catch is they won't tell you anything about the vehicle. They won't tell you what it is, what make, what model, what options, what engine, what anything. All you know is the price. The price is solid, but you have absolutely no idea what you're going to get for it. Now, that's a big problem, right? Now, imagine the same situation, except instead of buying a new vehicle, you want to buy a complex set of financial transactions. Now, how do we get from cars and prices to financial transactions? And where are we going wrong here? Four little letters, S-O-F-R. SOFR has been um, troubled from the very beginning, more troubled than the rate that it was supposed to replace, except SOFR is ne was never, is not, and was never a suitable replacement for LIBOR. How did we get here? What does it matter? Let's talk about that next. I'm Jeff, this is Eurodollar University, and today let's go over some of the trouble that maybe we're not seeing directly in the credit markets because of this poorly applied situation with SOFR. Now I've talked about SOFR recently because of it has been exceedingly low. In fact, it was many, many basis points below the RRP last week. If you have an interest, you can go back and look at that uh, video. I'll put a link in the description as well as the YouTube thingy somewhere over here. Maybe it's over here. I don't know where they put them. Either way, SOFR rates have gone low, which is exactly the situation many credit market participants had feared, feared. And I know what you're thinking already. How can low rates be something to be afraid of? Well, that's what they are. Um, most of the times we associate low rates because of economics, because of central banking. We associate low rates with too much money, stimulus. When in fact, history shows, experience shows, there are times, there are specific times when low rates are the worst thing that you could possibly find. 2008 was a perfect example. But before we get to that, let's back up and do some review. We'll do some quick review. Um, if you want to get into the actual very deep dive details, I'll put some links in the description. I've written many essays over the years about the SOFR transition and how tortured and troubled it's been and why that is. You can read about it there. But very briefly, 2012, uh, central bankers, officials got in front of the cameras, in front of Congress, in front of regulators and said, LIBOR is a crime. It's the crime of the century, except it never was. Um, in fact, I like, there's a quote that I always turn to from that time period, 2012, Ben Bernanke's in front of Congress, and a fellow by the name of Scott Garrett, a Republican congressman, said, you, Mr. Bernanke, you've been before this committee countless numbers of times since 2008, and if this is the crime of the century, as so many people are reporting today, never once did you ever come and mention it as being a problem. Never once did you come here and say, this is what we're going to do about it. Interesting, right? All of a sudden, LIBOR, this cheating scandal, which was a real scandal, although that was way overblown. That's a topic for another day. But regardless, LIBOR had been well known for many years. Then all of a sudden in 2012, it's a big, huge deal. Why was it a big, huge deal? Uh, in some of those articles that I've written, you can see why that is. And that's because not because of the cheating scandal or because of LIBOR was an inappropriate rate, because of what it actually represented. Now LIBOR, the history of LIBOR goes back to the, uh, I believe it's 1969, actually the Shah of Iran 
back when oil producers weren't making a whole lot of money because oil prices were extremely low. And so the euro dollar system was available to oil producers to finance new production, which was exceedingly difficult with low oil prices, as well as to allow them to borrow against their oil producing collateral in order to just participate in the global economic and financial system. The idea was those oil producers like Iran, like the Shah of Iran, who had decent collateral, allow them to be able to buy or borrow on a syndicated basis at the best possible rate. But what is the best possible rate at a, in, inside a hidden offshore shadow money system? There is no money, there's no rates, there's no publications, there's no nothing here. There's no, you can't go to the Wall Street Journal and scroll for the best rates in Euro dollar markets. So um, a guy, uh, Manny Hedy, Hanny said, manufacturers Hanover, said, let's put together what all these banks that are operating in the shadow Euro dollar system, what is the best possible rate that they could come up with borrowing in Euro dollars? Thus, LIBOR was born. But it was never, never, it was never meant to be a rate applied to actual transactions. On the other I mean, it was supposed to be just, hey, if you were borrowing in the market today, what is the best rate you could possibly get? Because that's what we want to give our customers. And so the British Bankers Association was formed and this pan LIBOR panel was put together. And these banks simply opined on what their best rate could be if they were borrowing in the market that day. And then that became the benchmark rate for all these credit customers around the world to be able to borrow on. So LIBOR was meant to be exactly what it became, which was a benchmark rate pricing, not just credit assets, but syndicated loans and more complicated financial structures. Down the road, eventually derivatives, tons and tons of derivatives too. So LIBOR was never what the market was doing. It's what the people, the, uh, the money makers in the market thought the market would be on any given day. So you could see how there would be room for opinions as well as perhaps manipulation too. That posed somewhat of a problem for policymakers, but not for that respect. The, what policymakers have said is that LIBOR, because it's an opinion, therefore it's not a real rate, that's what's wrong with LIBOR. But that's not really their, their beef with it. LIBOR during the 2008 crisis was a better measure of strain in the marketplace than any other rate. And we'll get into the reasons why in a, in a few minutes here. But LIBOR went up, which was consistent with everything that we saw at the time starting in 2000, starting August 9th of 2007. LIBOR shot up by 12 basis points, which was highly unusual. And then the next day, August 10th, LIBOR went further up. Well, other rates like GC repo, T-bills, even federal funds went down. So LIBOR throughout the financial crisis reminded the public or showed the public in real time two things that central bankers hated. Number one, what was really going on, which was not what central bankers told you was going on. Remember subprime is contained? Well, you knew subprime wasn't contained and you knew it wasn't subprime by what was going on in LIBOR. And number two, LIBOR is, as I said before, the offshore shadow money hidden euro dollar rate. It is a rate that applies to the monetary system outside the Federal Reserve's jurisdiction. So if you're a Fed official, you're going through 2000, 2007, 2008 crisis, 
and you have this interest rate that is embarrassing you at every turn and telling the public you have no friggin' idea what you're doing, you've got a score to settle. And so when the LIBOR cheating scandal came around in 2012, they took their opportunity. However, it's not so simple because LIBOR is and does things that no other rate actually can accomplish. So what happened was after the 2012 scandal, the, the Fed got in front of Congress, bank regulators in England got involved because it was a British Bankers Association. And they got together and said, LIBOR is done. This, this sucker has embarrassed us for too many times. Uh, we, we gotta get rid of it. And, but they said, wait a minute, the bankers in particular said, wait a minute, you can't just get rid of something that prices pretty much everything in the financial system around the world. It's not so easy as saying we're going to move from one thing to another because LIBOR accomplishes something that the market absolutely needs. Because it applied to unsecured interbank transactions, basically, again, banks were considering what they would be able to borrow on any given day without putting up any collateral, nothing more than their reputation, best interest rate, best, best numbers. Therefore, it was a measure, and contained within that opinion was a measure of credit and liquidity risk, liquidity risk in particular. So when LIBOR went high, in 2007 and 2008, especially in the fall of 2008, LIBOR really spiked while other interest rates really fell. What that said was exactly what people who wanted to use LIBOR, that was the information they wanted. They wanted to know when there was stress in the markets. They wanted to know when there was stress in borrowing. And the only way you could tell that is something like the LIBOR rate that applied to unsecured interbank transactions. It's basically the starting place to understand these vital fundamental risks of monetary and financial markets. But what the Fed did was, the Fed, not just the Fed, the Fed, uh, the, the regulators, you know, there's the triumvirate, there's the Federal Reserve, there's the OCC, and there's uh, the, uh, the um, FDIC, they all get together and they say, we're gonna look at this thing as bureaucrats do. And in 2014, they convened what was called the Alternative Rate Reference Committee, Reference Committee, which was tasked with coming up with a suitable replacement to LIBOR. This is 2014, almost a decade ago. Um, and I, there's a quote from 2014 from our favorite central banker, Mr. Bill Dudley. And this is the one time he got something right. In 2014, he says, everyone knows LIBOR is a trouble reference rate. Well, that part he didn't get right. Yet people are still using LIBOR in all their derivatives contracts because it did something the market needed it to do. So back to Dudley, I would prefer to avoid the problem of forcing the transition to the new reference rate by just actually giving people an improved reference rate. And then it happens simultaneously and we're done with that problem. Easier said than done, but he's absolutely right here just giving people an improved reference rate. But what the ARRC came up with was number one, because they said, because officials had said, the big problem with LIBOR is that it's a fake rate. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's un, not just it's unsecured, but it's not actual transactions. So we need a new reference rate that references actual transactions in the marketplace. But because most transactions nowadays take, are undertaken on a secured basis, repo, Basically, what was available to the ARC were repo rates. 
And repo rates are not unsecured rates. But that's what they had to go with. So SOFR was going to be, eventually they settled on this secured overnight financing rate, SOFR, which was intended to replace LIBOR drawn from repo transactions. And the marketplace said, this is not a suitable replacement for LIBOR. Um, they started pricing SOFR in 2018. They started really trying to force banks into SOFR by 2019. And in October of 2019, 10 of the largest banks, regional banks in the United States said, what are you doing? You're pushing SOFR on us. It's not an appropriate or suitable reference. Uh, and a letter sent to the three regulators, um, the, the Fed, the FDIC, and the OCC, um, they said, quote, these 10 banks told the regulators, SOFR, quote, is not well suited to be a benchmark for lending products. And then they said, during times of economic stress, SOFR, unlike LIBOR, will likely decrease disproportionately relative to other market rates as investors seek the ha safe haven of U.S. Treasury securities. And not just U.S. Treasury securities, but U.S. Treasury repo. This is exactly what has happened over the last week. As I've talked about in that previous video, as I've written down, uh, written in our uh, in the uh, Markets Insider Pro deep dives, as well as some of the daily briefings, you can check those out for, for more information. SOFR rates have done exactly what these banks warned regulars would do, would happen. Now let's back up a little bit. What is it about SOFR that's not, not, makes it not suitable as a replacement for LIBOR? One thing is what I just talked about. Um, it is a GC repo rate. It's drawn from repo transactions. Therefore, it's secured. doesn't have the same liquidity and credit risk characteristics embedded in those prices, and it behaves very differently. There's also another problem, which we won't get into here, that is a more esoteric issue. Three-month LIBOR is how much are uh, what interest rate are you willing to charge or you're willing to borrow at to borrow unsecured funds for a term of three months. So today, what are you going to give me for a three-month loan? Over um, a SOFR, by uh, by contrast, does not have the same term structure. SOFR is strictly an overnight rate drawn from repo markets. Now the authorities and regulators thought, well, who cares? There'll be a futures market that will spring up and that'll give us somewhat of an implied term structure as they start trading forward SOFR rates. But that's not the same thing either. Again, it's very different what I can borrow today for three months versus what will the overnight rate be in three months. Those, are two, those two things are not the same thing at all. So on that count, SOFR has no, no term structure. That's a problem. But the bigger problem that we're dealing with today that we can't really get our handle on because we have no data or information is the fact that, as the bank said in 2019, during times of economic stress, SOFR will likely decrease disproportionately relative to other market rates as investors seek the haven of U.S. Treasury securities and U.S. Treasury repo. As I said last week, when SOFR and GC rates went down in 2007 and 2008, it was because, not because there was too much money, it was quite the opposite. Worst panic since 1929. You don't equate that with too much money because you wouldn't be, you wouldn't if you were thinking rationally and open-minded. SOFR rates go down because there's, uh, number one, you, you're only looking for the safest borrowers, not everybody else. 
And number two, you only borrow, you're only willing to lend on the best quality collateral, which there is a shortage of. So imagine you've priced all these financial securities. You're hoping these, these prices will tell you something about the fundamental marketplace. And instead, SOFR does the opposite of what you need it to do during times of financial stress. If you're looking for something like LIBOR to be a suitable LIBOR replacement, you would expect that the rate would go up during periods of financial stress. And then if it goes down, what happens? Well, that's really the question. Because now we're seeing exactly the, 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 uh, the problem that banks had identified. And they had been reluctant to switch to SOFR all along because of this issue. And this and the other issue. SOFR was never a suitable replacement to LIBOR. Now, maybe it's a good thing that three-month LIBOR and 12-month LIBOR and some of the major tenors are still being priced to next year. But as of last year, at the end of last year, regulators said, if you issue any new loans or new credit products using LIBOR as a reference, we're going to harm you in terms of regulatory scrutiny. So there's a whole bunch of new credit products that were issued this year based on maybe SOFR, some banks have used alternatives like Ameririber and the Bloomberg index that was put together that was these other alternatives that were actually meant to be a suitable replacement because they had the same characteristics for, as LIBOR did. But what we don't know is how much credit was priced based on SOFR and how much of a problem that is, that is being. It's reasonable to assume that if risk is going up and your rates are going down, it's going to be somewhat of an issue. So this is, this is the very situation that banks had been worrying about all along. And here it is, we're at a period of stress and strain. And now you're looking at your portfolios and thinking, are these prices telling me what they're, what's actually going on? Are they representative of any meaningful considerations and conclusions in the marketplace? And if you're worried about the prices of fundamental characteristics of finance and money, are you going to be lending? Are you going to be doing more credit? Are you going to be extending credit? You're going to be very, this uncertainty creates another headwind for the monetary and financial system amidst a, a growing sea of headwinds. That's probably a mix of a hurricane. I don't know. Whatever the case may be, SOFR is an unnecessary complication during the work. It's pro-cyclical, which is exactly the thing that they were trying to avoid. Well, not really. That's what they told the public. This whole thing is about bureaucrats being embarrassed, bureaucrats not knowing their jobs and having a monetary system that exists outside of their purview and wanting to cover that up in doing so in one of the stupidest ways possible. They can't say they weren't warned because they were warned for over a decade that this was a ridiculous idea and they kept pushing, pushing it, pushing it, pushing it anyway. So now here we are. SOFR rates have fallen. In fact, the numbers from last week, you had a low of 296 on Thursday. That was the main SOFR rate, the, the what is it, the um, weighted median SOFR. Uh, I believe the 75th percentile was 299. So 75% of all transactions took place six basis points below RRP last week, Thursday. And then Friday, it was 298, so up a, two, a couple of basis points, but still, you know, well below RRP and the 75th percentile was exactly three. So 75% of all transactions were well below RRP. And that's not, you know, that's not what uh, should be priced into derivatives as well as financial products where 
these are representative, these low sulfur rates are representative of heightened risk. So something to keep an eye on and it's likely already causing an enormous amount of stress that we're not able to see and observe directly because despite all the noise, despite all the complaints, despite all the official nonsense from regulators, they didn't actually fix the problem. They created one and then jammed a solution that wasn't a, a workable solution down the throats of the system and leaving the system to wonder what the hell's actually going on out there. So this was actually, this whole sulfur discussion actually was raised in the member section of Eurodollar University. Someone had asked, you know, well ahead of the curve because of course the Eurodollar University members are well ahead of the curve, had asked, the, in, you know, back in August whether or not this would be a problem. And I think now that we're seeing sulfur rates really soften to mix, uh, mix the, our, our words a little bit more. Yeah, it, I think it is a problem and it is contributing to the deflationary wave, the third deflationary wave that we're seeing now. So thanks again to all the Eurodollar University members. Uh, also, again, you could check out more information, uh, articles I've written at the links in the description, as well as some of the deep dives and daily briefings that contain this information at Markets Insider Pro. Until next time, take care.